WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts, and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. What happens when survivors break their silence and shape what gets revealed about the aftermath of shootings? Well, a project from The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom focusing on gun violence in America, does just that. The Trace created a survivor's storytelling network. Where over the course of a year, people who have been shot or lost loved ones work on telling and then writing their experiences in essay form. Those essays are now online and available to read in full at thetrace.org. They were also co-published in partnership with The Sun-Times, Block Club Chicago, The Chicago Reader, and The Southside Weekly. Now, in this episode, we'll hear some of the survivors talk about their experiences and about redemption, justice, and healing. But first, we sat down with Justin Agrello, a community engagement reporter for The Trace, to take us inside the project. Justin began by telling us about what inspired The Trace to start the Survivor's Storytelling Network. Here's Justin. So the project really began in May 2022. Um, when When I first started at The Trace, I was tasked with speaking to as many people as possible um, who either were directly affected by gun violence or who were working sort of in the violence prevention space. Mm -hmm. And what we were trying to figure out is, was what were people's perceptions of gun violence media in Chicago? And um, what could we do to maybe fill information gaps or story gaps um, and and better serve people who are directly affected? Yeah. That's yeah. a big task. It is a big task. And a heavy one, too. So I, I wonder how you hope this particular approach that The Trace has taken changes the way that stories about gun violence get told. Yeah, I hope um, survivors and communities where gun violence is common are treated with a bit more care. Um, are, I think there's a there can be a tendency to cover to cover gun violence in Chicago through episodic crime stories and to cover them very quickly and to really rely heavily on police narratives. Um, Mm. And so I think what I would hope this project inspires is to really slow down a bit and to really ask ourselves, how do we bring the folks who are directly affected into our editorial process um, as much as possible? And how, how do we treat their stories with the care and sensitivity that they deserve? Yeah, you got me thinking when you talked about the episodic series there. Is that what you mean when you've said in the past that this issue is oversimplified? Yeah, I think when you're covering gun violence through simply either listening to a radio, a police scanner, or maybe showing up to a crime scene and you're taking police narratives as the one sort of narrative, 
there's a lot of flattening in that process, right? Um, sort of like what I said in the introduction to this project is, you know, what we heard through that listening tour is that people felt like their loved ones were defined by their death, right? Were def defined by this tragic thing that happened to them. Mm -hmm. And they were people who had lived full lives, who had dreams, who had quirks, who had interests, who were loved. Um, and sort of when you're sort of only, when you're defining people by their death, there's just so much that's lost in that process. And so this project at The Trace really was trying to ask ourselves, okay, since we since we don't cover episodic crime stories, since we're not a daily news pub, like, what would that story really be if we sort of pass the mic to the people who are who are living that every day? I want to hear more more about the listening tour yeah. that you uh, you mentioned. Um, talk to us about that survivor storyteller network. How how were folks able to get involved in it? Yeah, um, so we launched an application process. I want to say last March. Um, and it was a very low lift application. Um, there was a couple questions. Um, and then we internally created a rubric for how we would choose people. And some of those criteria were like, were they directly affected themselves or did they lose a loved one? Um, did their story have sort of, you know, did they have sort of a grasp of the story that they wanted to tell? Um, and then did that story within that story was there sort of some nod to a larger system that that readers could sort of walk away with um, understanding this crisis a little bit better from mm -hmm. those on the inside. And and I have come across projects before that do something similar where they, they fuse storytelling and healing. Usually, though, that's that's not for an audience. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's for the individual. Right. Why did you ultimately decide to offer these essays up for the public to see. Right. And so we didn't we didn't want to promise anyone healing, right? Like we're not clinicians, we're journalists. Um what we wanted to offer people was to say if you if you have experienced gun violence, if you've lost a loved one and you feel ready that to tell your story and you want to tell your story in a way that feels accurate to you, that feels um if you want to remember your loved one in a way that feels yeah, accurate and right. Um you, we're here to help you do that. Um, and in that process, if you do find healing, that's great. Um, or if you find peace or, you know, a sense of agency, a sense of empowerment, I think um, that's great. But I think really for us, we didn't want to promise, over promise anyone anything. And so it was really more about survivors. Through that listening tour, we kept hearing how survivors felt like there was an overemphasis on death tolls and shooting numbers and not enough coverage on like what their day-to-day -day, um, experiences were and so that's sort of like why we wanted to share this the story with the public to say mm -hmm. like this this crisis that's often oversimplified oversimplified has nuance and texture and and sort of here's what it looks like to the lives of the people who have experienced it so part of this process was as you've alluded to this one-on-one -on -one story coaching Tell us what that was like. Right. Sorry, I Are you don't teaching know. people how to write? Kind of. You know, I used to be a teacher, an English teacher, so it's really hard to teach people how to write. So yeah. I think a lot of the survivors that, that came into the project had sort of a, already a foundational sort of... Um, many of them were writers, like Asia Yomi later was a writer. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, so what happens is, what happened was we met in person three times um, for three hours, and there we talked more sort of like 
we were sort of zoomed out a bit. Like, what is the coverage of gun violence in Chicago? What don't they like as survivors themselves? And how can their stories sort of not fall into those tropes? Or how can they add, what's the value out of their stories, right? And then through the one-on-one coaching sessions, me with them, um, was that was sort of like where we really workshopped the stories. And yeah. every person was different, right? Like some, for some people, it was easier for them to tell their story orally, us transcribe that and that be like sort of like their first draft and then we dig into that transcription and then move things around and mm-hmm. and rephrase things and and sort of put it into a, a personal narrative structure that would make sense for readers um yeah so it was like a lot of like us in the yeah. draft like really thinking about writing really thinking down to the word level right like does this word accurately reflect how you feel yeah. and how you sort of conceptualize your own your own story. So after all that, Justin, what, what did you conclude? And I'm curious if your perspective even on gun violence and surviving gun violence, if that changed over time after working with these folks. Yeah, it, it definitely changed. Um, wow, I feel like I'm still on the on the roller coaster of this project. Yeah. Um, so it's like I haven't had the time to like sit and like sit with it and like process it. But I think each person in this um in, in our cohort taught me something different and I think did you have maybe preconceived <clears throat> notions that shifted now definitely yeah I think like um, prior to this project I thought maybe um, like Marlon's story for example right there's a line in his story where he says like I realized I could not the justice that I wanted could not be given to me through the carceral system through the prison system mm-hmm. right and I think like prior to that that point I thought because because the prison system is kind of is the only in, like system that we have for sort of what's the word I'm looking for not for punishment but for justice you know for a response to what happens to people like right. I thought maybe like most people would want that I don't know if not that's necessarily yeah yeah I don't know if that's even actually true because like you know there has been a growing sort of like movement in Chicago for like restorative justice and, and prison abolition so I don't know I'm trying to think um, off the top of my head what I've learned. I learned a lot about just, I think I learned a lot mostly for me is like handling people with care, right? And so I think, for example, like every time I interact with the group, it's like really giving them a lot of heads up before the questions that I'm going to ask them or like really trying to take, like trying to treat them with as much care. Yeah, and as you say in your headline, like centering their voices. Right, right, right. Sorry, I don't know if that was a good answer, but... (laughs) Perfectly fine. Uh, We'll leave it there. Justin Agrello is a community engagement reporter for The Trace. That's a nonprofit newsroom focused on gun violence in America. You can read the essays at thetrace.org and suntimes.com. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We also sat down with three gun violence survivors, Aja Johnson, Marlon English, and Jareen Noel. They each participated in the Trace's Survivors Storytelling Network by writing essays about their experiences with gun violence here in Chicago. A note to those listening, we'll be discussing the physical and psychological impacts of gun violence, which at times might include vivid descriptions. I began by asking Aja, Marlon, and Jari about what made them want to tell their stories now. Here's Jari. I felt like then no one actually understood the story of like what, like, being a good child and getting gunned down for no apparent reason, I feel like it need to be spoke up for him. Like, I'm speaking for him, not myself or, like, 
I'm really speaking for him because he's not here no more. He really wanted to finish school, and I just wanted to speak for him. Yeah, and you're talking about your 16-year-old son, which we'll, we'll get into your story yes. uh, in more depth in just a moment. What about you, Marlon? Um, Why tell this story now? Yeah. Uh, well, I feel as though uh, I was given the opportunity like to publicly speak about what happened because in my own work, you know what I mean, I kind of talk about being a survivor and what that means for me. And also um, being a prison abolitionist, I talk about um, my, I guess my perspective as the uh, the type of response that I would prefer for what happened, you know what I mean? So I felt as though that's an important perspective because a lot of people thinking about um, retribution or revenge and things like that, I'm, I'm thinking about like, how can we all heal through this process? Right, right. And uh, Asia, what about you? You were you've been touched at multiple points in your life mm-hmm. by by gun violence. So why talk about it now? Um, it's interesting when the opportunity came to me. Um, my direction was actually to talk about the displacement and how it impacts us economically with the places um, that we choose to live in. Um, And it wasn't until I got into the process of learning how to write about my experiences um, where it took a a different shift. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a months-long process, about a year, really sort of digging into all the ways that this event in your life had changed you and your perspective. Would you say that some shifts happened after taking part in this process, Aja? Absolutely. <laughs> I didn't think it would be as therapeutic as it was, um, but it was very cathartic for me. Yeah. Marlon, you start your essay with a sentence that rocked me. It says, I always knew I would get shot. It wasn't a question of if, but when. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I, I grew up having a very rough lifestyle, you know what I mean? Even my current lifestyle is is very um, high risk, you know what I mean? So, like, uh, uh, and then the areas that I lived in or areas that I visit have always been um, the threat of being shot or, like, having to shoot people and things like that. So that's always been a part of my reality. And so that, that was something I never really feared, but... Even, like, after experiencing I don't fear it at all. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't have fear of being shot after really? being shot. Yeah. Where does that come from? Um, It comes from, I guess, just being numb to things or just knowing that, like, this happens to people. It shouldn't happen, but it, it became somewhat of a norm because a lot of people in my friends' group have been shot and survived. Hmm. You're numb, but are you expecting for this to happen again no i don't expect for it to happen again but um you things can happen you know what i mean you could be at the wrong place at the wrong time i've been places and and witnessed people being shot i've been in places doing street art and a person walked past me with a gun and as he was approaching me i was concerned but after i spoke to him i felt safe you know what i mean but Mm. just being in different places different things can occur you write about your upbringing in your essay, um, you know, moving from the South Side mm-hmm. to the North to Rogers Park, mm-hmm. and 
in the summer of 2015, you describe it as your two worlds collided. Right. Tell us the story. Uh, so yeah, at that time I was uh, doing a lot of, I guess, uh, a lot of community engagement stuff, and the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was starting to gain momentum. Mm-hmm. And I've been to a lot of conferences at that time, and so I was I was active, you know. What I mean, and I came back home, and uh, a situation occurred where um, some of the groups in my neighborhood was having some conflict amongst each other, and we was gonna have a peace treaty. And in the midst of us having the peace treaty, I was shot with two others. The irony. I know right. exactly. And the people who we were having the peace treaty with weren't uh, weren't people who was involved in the shooting. So it was the conflict was an internal conflict. You know, what I mean, a lot of people in the same group was mm-hmm. having some issues amongst each other, and we were trying to come. So to you were trying to fix all the infighting. Somewhat. And then. Outsiders come exactly and so, start firing exactly. And that was our issue. We was like, we we look real weak to everybody else right now because we tripping on each other. Mm. You get hit multiple times. Mm-hmm. What are your injuries? Uh, so I got shot in my wrist, and it came out the back of my hand, and I got shot in the stomach. So yeah, all the bullets entered and exited. So I don't have any more bullets in me, and I don't have like any long term injuries. Like my hand operates perfectly fine. I just can't bend my wrist all the way back. Mm-hmm. So I have to do push ups in a very interesting way when I do push ups. But yeah, I, I can still do art and do all the other things that I do with my hands. Aja, you grew up in Hyde Park mm-hmm. and uh, and in Woodlawn. Mm-hmm. And it was during that time in Woodlawn where you experienced deep loss mm-hmm. to gun violence. Who did you lose? <laughs> Who didn't I lose? And it's, re- it's really interesting because while working on this process, I lost a good friend um, in the early stages of this process. I think right when I submitted my pitch. So you're talking <laughs> about just within this past year? Yeah. Um, but while I was that. living, thank you, I wrote about him in my in my piece, but... While I was living there, a lot of the males, I can probably name on on one hand, the amount of males that I did not know that had not been shot, that did not go to jail, um, that were not dead, um, I can say maybe two or three. Hmm. Um, and because those, the majority had been a victim of gun violence in yeah, some way or lost their life. in some way. Or lost absolutely, their life. Absolutely, but yeah. Lost you lost them. your stepfather too. I lost my stepfather. Um, we had not been living there very long. And I hope that it's clear in my piece that, you know, his death did not occur in Woodlawn, um, but it stood out to me because when we got there, I was like, oh, man, this is this is completely different from what I've been. And what I started experiencing after his loss definitely started making me look at things differently. Like, I don't think if he was in the home, I would have been able to do this or I would have experienced that just because of the type of person that he was. Um, and, and it started making me think, like, I wonder if it's like this for all the kids mm. because a lot of them did not have a father present in the home. Um, those two, three few that have not been to jail, mm-hmm. that have not been shot, were the kids that had a father in their home. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about that impact because from your piece, I got that he wasn't around for a long time. No, he and your he mom wasn't. dated for a short period before he they wasn't. got married. Yeah, they had only been on three dates, um, and it was like a year that they had been together um, from the time of getting married and moving to Woodlawn. That had been maybe like a good year. But the impact he, he had on your life 
it, it, it's lasting. Man, his presence allowed my mother to be able to be stable, to be present in the home. Hmm. You know, when you don't have a father or a male figure, it it forces the woman to have to step up. They've got to work real hard. You know, the, the father is supposed to be the one that shows you how to work hard. The mom is supposed to be the one that shows you how to nurture. Um, but when you don't have that father in the house to lead, to guide, to show you how to work hard, the mom has to be the one to step up and do all of that. So it's a little imbalance. Mm. And even though he was there for just a short period of time, I was able to see a balance right away. Interesting. Um, so. You left Woodlawn in 96, and it struck me when you said in your piece uh, that the community then became, quote, like a distant cousin to you. Yeah. So looking back, what what support would you say you would have needed to stay? I or anybody that's in that situation to, right? and, and decides to go, um, what's needed to keep them there? Well, first you have to take accountability for some of the things that you experience. And then you also have to be able to talk to people about those things that you've experienced. I was putting together a school reunion um, last year, the year before last. And while I was talking to some people that had grown up with me in High Park, they had similar experiences like, you know, like of trauma. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason why they never wanted to return to High Park. And I found it to be so weird. Um, But when I started working through you know, these relationships and and, and just trying to comfort them. I'm like, well, I experienced the same thing, but it was in Woodlawn. And and it was completely different, right? Would you return (laughs) to Woodlawn? It was completely different. I have. I have. And it took this experience with trying to deal with my friend's death, um, just understanding it and processing it. I've been back to Woodlawn. (laughs) It just took a long time. Yeah. And there were only a few people that I talked to. My friend Casper was one of them. Um, but I've definitely gone back. Um, I just most recently went back and took some pictures there for this story. Yeah. Um, I've gone back and I've gone back and talked to people. Um, there's there's definitely a difference now. I, I have a great appreciation. Yeah. When I was younger, I did not see the beauty, and I know I mentioned that. Um, my next door neighbor was a pastor that owned his own church. He also had you know roosters and chickens in the back, you know, in the backyard, and it's like in the hood. So the rooster is waking us up at six a.m. and I'm like, this is just so weird. Um, but the beauty is that there were far more business owners. Mm-hmm in Woodlawn than in Hyde Park. Lots of professionals in Hyde Park, but they didn't own their own business. And all of that getting overshadowed Yep, by the sound of gunfire yep. at night, et cetera. Yep, absolutely. Jerry, you mentioned earlier your son, mm-hmm. uh, Rashawn. You call him Sean. Yes. <laughs> I love that. You call him Sean. Um, Sean was shot and killed just a little over a year ago, last yes. October in North Lawndale. Um, I can feel the heartache when reading your essay um, of, of living without him, but a sense of frustration because his killing is still unsolved. Yes. Who was Rashawn? Tell us about him. <laughs> he was amazing. He, um, he just wanted to just be a normal thing. Like he lost his father. He didn't even know his father. So it's just like, like Asia was saying, you have to teach, you know, your child. I had to teach him how to actually be, a boy to a grown man. That's what I was trying to accomplish. Uh, well, I think I believe that I accomplished it because he was going forward school, like no headaches, no problems, anything. He did what he had to do. Um, if I just tell him, like, 
to go help a neighbor. You know how kids give you a frustration, like, oh, I don't want to do it. No. He'll look at me and go do it, but I'm knowing that he don't want to, but he just did it. He didn't give you no issues, no problems, anything. He was an amazing kid. Mm. Like, I wouldn't betray tra- him for the world. And the day that he lost his life, gosh, that touched me because you, you said goodbye because he just wanted to go outside for a little bit. He was actually on punishment. He was on punishment. Yeah, he um got a, I got a phone call saying he didn't get his grades together. But, you know, he, being a good kid, I'm like, okay, you're not going nowhere. You're just going to the next block. Right. And he went to the store for his sister. His sister was getting ready for work. Uh, she just twisted his hair because I was wondering, like, why do you want your hair twisted up? Like, all along, I got told in the long run he was going to see a, to see a girl. Oh, <laughs> but, that's usually what's behind it. Yeah, so. Um, <laughs> so he's getting himself right. Yeah. And she just did it, Sarah. She asked him to go to the store for for her before she went to work. He went to the store. He came back, dropped it off. He went back out the door. That was the last time I seen him. When you write about this, you, you focus on the concept of justice, uh, similar to Marlon. Your son is gone. There are no leads as to who his killer is. No. What does justice look like for you and for Rashawn? That's hard, like, uh, it's it's really hard to explain. Cause it's like, if I do get justice by being so long and they do find out something, I feel like y'all done came up with something to try to get you out of, you know, killing my son. Only thing that I have that I was told from detectives that um, the gun actually had four murders on it and my son is one of them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. due to, if it do, like whoever get caught with that gun, that probably like the ones who pulled the trigger. So it's like I, anywhere it goes, I'm still gonna be stuck at a spot to like, why you guys come shoot? Who actually did the shooting? Is they dead already? Or you know, I would still would never know. So it's like justice still would not get set right for me. Yeah, it would never get set right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your story hit me in a different way. I'm a mom as well. I've got a 16 year old and a 15 year old. Rashawn and I almost have the same birthday. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's a little Leo. <laughs> yes, that's my Leo twin. That's your my Leo birthday twin. is July. He is in August. Yeah, I'm August 20th. <laughs> yeah, he was August 21st. Uh, Marlon, after you were shot, as you mentioned, everybody around you wanted retribution. Mm-hmm. That was what they called justice. Mm-hmm. You wanted to take a different approach. Talk a bit about that, because your your views on justice and punishment are, are interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, if however many people got shot behind what happened, it didn't... It didn't change the fact that they pulled up on the block and shot three of us. You know what I mean? And it, it's just gonna continue. So, an eye for an eye leaves us all blind. You know what I mean? So I'm just like, no, it's no sense in us constantly harming each other and constantly putting ourselves in position to, to go to jail. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. My my thing was I gotta keep living. You know what I mean? I gotta keep living, moving forward, and I gotta put myself in situations where I'm not going to get shot or yeah. where I'm not going to be. Because um, sometimes that's out of your control. You know what I mean? I've been places where people have been shot and they had nothing to do with anything. So I just was like, I got to yeah. I gotta change my way of thinking and change my crowd. You know what I mean? But you say for the people who do these things, right? prison's not effective. No, it's not. It's not. Because I, I work with young people in jail on Saturdays. Like, every Saturday morning, I go in and volunteer and talk to a group of kids. And they don't get it. 
you know what I mean? They don't understand. They've been some of them been in there for a while. Some of them gonna be in there for a while. And they still don't get and, it. And they still don't get it. Like it's it's not rehabilitating them. Some people they go to jail and they change and they get opportunities to improve themselves, but a lot of folks don't because prison is a very hard place. You know what I mean? It's a place where it's a lot of violence going on. It's a lot of um, people thinking the ways to be better criminals. So I don't I don't see jail as a, a place for yeah. healing. You're nodding, Aja, but before we take a pause here, I'm curious. I mean, if, if prisons aren't effective at rehabilitation or if they're not the answer to justice, what is? Opportunity. I think when I was in Woodlawn, just comparing what I saw to Hyde Park, it's like the only difference is that the money isn't here. If there was money here, prime example, when we moved to Woodlawn after my uh, stepfather passed away, you could pull up on my block and my mom would have like four or five cars lined on the block. You know, hood rich. A lot of cars, a lot of jewelry, a lot of money, no car garage. You don't own your home. Stuff like that. But being injected into this neighborhood where everyone around you don't have the same thing it makes you an instant target and when you level the playing field that um i don't know if jealous would be jealousy would be the right word to use but the focus is not so apparent it's not needed mm -hmm. because people all have something to focus on they all have something so definitely for me i would say opportunity money, resources. I mean, in Hyde Park, it was a whole lot easier to have inspiration. You know, being around so many professionals, you just knew, like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go to college. When I said my backyard was Lakeshore Drive, I lived on Everett. My backyard was Lakeshore Drive. Yeah. I lived around a lot of professionals, so that was just where I thought I was supposed to go. Right. If you're in another neighborhood where you don't see that, the influence that predicts your behaviors and your patterns, that's about what you're around. We've been talking with survivors of gun violence who wrote about their experiences and perspectives on themes like justice, redemption, and regret. Marlon English, Aja Johnson, and Jerry Noel shared their stories in personal essays for The Trace. Marlon wrote about gun violence being a more complex issue than he had originally thought before he became a victim. So I asked him to explain. Here's Marlon. A lot of times we we don't know why people get shot or why people shoot people. Like I don't I don't want to think that people get up in the morning like I'm gonna shoot someone today. You know what I mean? So I think is I think of it as like an issue um, similar to what I just heard um, about like opportunity. You know what I mean? And I, and I grew up in Woodline, and so a lot of the situations that I saw where um, when violence was happening, it was connected to survival or connected to fear or, like, jealousy or envy. You know what I mean? A lot of times it was um, crimes of, of passion. You know what I mean? Somebody was dealing with the same woman, and drama was occurring from that. So, you know what I mean? A lot of the violence that I know of is, is situational. And sometimes... Um, in like a, a more current situation, people are tripping over conflicts on the internet, you know what I mean? So mm. 
that that's a whole other uh, dynamic. And it goes from the internet or social media yeah, to from, the streets. To the streets, or like say about like artists that are doing music. Someone says someone's name in the song, or they say they smoking someone, and then you got all of these situations that occur, and it's like you guys don't even really know each other. You know what I mean? And, and the community I was living in, some of the people in the conflict were relatives of my friends. And it was like, wow, like, we really beefing with your cousin, bro? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it, it it gets that sticky and it gets that wow, you know what I mean? So It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. I want to hear from all of you. What do you think people need to know to understand the full picture of gun violence? We have a lot of people listening to us right now that I'd say a large portion of them don't understand the full picture Mm-mm. of gun violence. Jerry? It's traumatizing. Um, it's very hurtful, devastating. There's a lot more. Like, it's, and I, I literally going through physical therapy. And I mean, I have like three therapies. Like, after losing your son. Yeah. And you're like, going through physical therapy. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's very heartbroken. You can't come back from it. Especially losing, like even being shot, you still want to. You got to go through physical, and you know, is it, you got to do so much just to get yourself back together. And I lost my son, so me losing my son, you can just imagine. I lost my kid's father at first from a car accident. Mm-hmm. Lost my mother from natural causes, and a son for a gunshot. Like you know, I my my life been. I'm really working with myself. And I'm trying to stay strong for my daughter. So it's really traumatizing, depressing, stressful. It's a lot. Are you taking care of your mental health too? Mm-hmm. I even have seizures behind it. I have seizures. So it's just like I really have to work with myself. And this just put extra on me. It's understandable. Yeah. Aja, what don't people understand about the full picture of, of gun violence? that they should know? Um, the trauma, the, the, the trauma is not just for a time period. Um, some, some people might heal after a few counseling sessions. You know, healing may never occur though. Um, it's an ongoing I, process. It's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. I think what people have to understand is that um, the impact of gun violence can really shape a community, keeping people out that can really make a change. Um, I didn't even think when I left Wilan that I would be a person of change. I didn't think I would be someone that would be working with the community or working with families or, you know, people in general. Um, But when I left, I had gotten pregnant and I was just like, yeah, wherever I go, it won't be in Woodlawn because the odds of a male being in that neighborhood mm-hmm. coming out unscathed without a father. And and it, you can have a father in the home, but you know, if the father is not on top of their business, then you can still, you know, mess around and have a child that, you know, goes astray as well. Um, but the odds are greater without a male in the home. And I was just like, Nope, I'll pay whatever I have to pay in rent to make sure to go. I am not yeah, well, to that same point, you you write about how gun violence displaces people, right? And and there's the the killing of leaders who want to make the community stronger, yeah. 
And then you also have other potential leaders who get scared away. Yeah, exactly. I would put you in that category. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I really admire someone like a Casper um, that is still actively involved in the neighborhood. I really Casper's admire. Friend. Yeah, that, that was that was tragically killed in March of this year. Um, but I've got living friends that are still doing things for the neighborhood. Um, um, Sterling Price, which is Pugs Adam. He does a lot of artwork at Inglewood. Mm-hmm. Um, Maurice Fatal. He's doing great things in, 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 in Inglewood as well. I mean, I, I really commend someone that can stay in the neighborhood um, while making a change. Yeah, Marlon uh, Jury talked about the, the physical aspects of trying to heal Mm-hmm. from this you write very candidly about your process yeah. and you called it embarrassing uh, explain that well wearing like a colostomy bag is, is pretty terrible you know what I mean like um, that's because of your wound to the yeah, abdomen to the stomach yeah so I had to wear like a colostomy bag and it would make farting noises and things like that or I would have to change it over time and so it was difficult so I had stayed home a lot and um yeah I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy it was a, a tough experience and I know people who survived and they had to wear it and so you know what I mean people that I know that had to go through that I kind of coach them through it like you gonna be alright bro just stay healthy for three months and it'll you know, put it right back properly you mm. know what I mean so yeah that was the embarrassing part of it I wasn't really embarrassed about, like, anything other than that part. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, like, yeah, everything else was okay, though. Like, my family, they took care of me, and I had, like, people around all the time, and I was tended to, you know what I mean? So I feel as though, like, if I didn't have such a great family and such a supportive family, it would have been very tough. Yeah. It would have been One of the things you said, too, was, I mean, I got to deal with this for now, but I'm alive. Yeah. Yeah. At least I was alive. I know a lot of people who didn't make it through. So I was grateful to be alive and had an opportunity to to change and to to do something different, I guess, you know what I mean? Yeah. Different than and than a lot of my friends were doing. So I felt as though like I still had an opportunity and a chance to I guess transform myself. You started this conversation though by by saying something that's still playing back in my mind, mm-hmm. Marlon. You said even my current lifestyle is at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'm a graffiti artist. So, like, times of night when we got to travel and go places, it's, it's dangerous. You know what I mean? It's dangerous at 2 and 3 a.m. I see what you mean. Yeah. We spoke earlier with uh, Justin Agrello from The Trace about how stories about gun violence typically get told. I'm thinking about the media. Mm-hmm. Jerry, how do you want to see or hear on the news these kinds of stories moving forward? First, I do want to tell Justin and the Bill, thank you guys for, you know, letting my son story be told. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is, it's just like, I really cannot, like, it's hard to answer that question because it's just like, like I was saying in the beginning, due to not having justice, like, people getting justice, I can't compare my story with theirs, so it's actually still kind of difficult. Like, they have justice, and they doing their 
court thing and stuff like you know whatever it goes on so it's like and nothing's not, been solved here right so it's like i really cannot actually answer that question maybe someone else can i really don't know but i really can't answer that question because it is you if you have justice i think it'll come out a different way but since i don't have it i can't really actually answer that question mm-hmm. that's fair yeah, what was the question how do you want to hear about these stories going forward in the news um hear about them from survivors and from people in the community and how it impacted them and uh yeah like as far as like the the last uh question i want to kind of piggyback off that like about justice and about like people going to court i don't know i had to go to court for my situation and that didn't feel good at all to like have to watch myself on camera being shot you know what i mean so i don't i feel as though like I don't want to see that kind of justice where people have to constantly be uh, revisiting their trauma in order to get justice. You know what I mean? I, f- I don't feel as though justice is going to happen when you play a, a video of someone being killed or being shot in front of you. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. going to make you enraged. and Re-traumatizing. Re-traumatizing you. So uh, I-, I like to see, yeah, like survivors telling their stories in the way that they want to tell it and in the way that they see it, and uh, us figuring out a way to handle justice that isn't retribution and revenge or it isn't uh, punitive, you know what I mean? Because people going to jail isn't changing the fact that people are being murdered. People going to continue to kill and shoot each other, and people going to continue to go to jail. It's an endless cycle. What a reality. Yeah. How do you decompress, Aja, after spending time sharing your story, right? Oh or dwelling on some of these hard topics. <laughs> I decompress actually through media. Yeah, um, I'm a cinephile, so I like to watch everything. Um, but I also like to read. I do a lot of audio books um, when I have to get up and go, or you know, when I'm not stationed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's it for me. Like if I'm going through something. Um, I'll go to the show by myself, and I'll I'll go see some movies. Uh, that, that, that's my thing. All of that provides you with an escape from what's yep. actually happening. It is keeping my mind occupied in somewhere else other than thinking about what I'm going through. Um, and if you don't mind, Sasha, I'd like to um, I'd like to respond to what I would like to see in the media going forward. I want to see more responsibility, more accuracy. You know, when my stepfather passed away, um, his name was misspelled. Um, and the narrative of the story was incorrect. And I don't know, you know, what happened with the person that reported the information, um, but there has to be some empathy. These are these are families. These are human beings that are really going through something, and it can't be biased. It can't be, oh, um, well, this is a, a, a war that's going on outside of this country. This should be our focus when we've got a war going on right here in our city. Um, I, I think they're equally, equally deserve the attention. Yeah, those are good points. Um, what additional resources do you want to see for survivors? Jury? Um, I think they should have, like, really, like, um, more activity for these kids to do, number one, to get off the streets. Because it's like, they get out of school, parents not at home, stuff like that. They need to get active, find something to do. Like I say, my son is gone for no reason. He went to school. 
He played basketball, football. He was trying to, you know, go for it. Gun violence and none of that, that stuff was not even on his mind. So I think they really need to push more forward to parents need to put these kids into activities, just like daycare. Keep your kids doing something instead of them got to watch their back and give phone calls like, where you at? But they over here smoking and drinking or playing with guns or whatever. I just seen like a little, um, on 48 Hours yesterday, I was watching it, and these two people was later playing back and forth with a gun. Like, well, um, what you call it when they draw it at you? Um, back in the cowboy days, you know, they, you oh, know. Oh, yes. Yeah, they was um, doing it, and when he pulled it out, the boy shot him and shot him right in his neck. Mm. And he was so scared they was friends. So, like, you know, kids are doing off-the-wall stuff. Go and accidental your, deaths Yeah, happening. just go yeah. put your, find something for your kids to do. Like, I don't care if you could put money towards drinking and smoking, put your kids in these activities so you know exactly where they are at. Instead of just got to watch over, you know, they got to watch over their back and or yeah. you got to keep calling them every day and you worry about your other kids. You know, they need to find more, like, activities for these kids to do. You spent a lot of time becoming a writer, Marlon, for this for this project, you plan on continuing? Uh, yeah. To write? Continue, yeah. I, would you I'm recommend a, other survivors participate in something like this? Yeah, I would definitely recommend it, just so they could reflect and be able to kind of identify some things and, and tell their story. Some people hold on to it, and it damages them and causes them more harm. So I think hmm. just talking about it and, and letting it go and making peace with it. I made peace with my situation very early. Cause I had to. Cause mm-hmm. I had to keep going. What gives you that that strength? Um, life, I guess. You know, what I mean, life and just being in a situation where I have to be uh, accountable and responsible for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you all take very good care. That is Marlon English, Aja Johnson and Jerry Noel. They participated in the Traces Survivor Storytelling Network, and they wrote essays reflecting on their own experiences with gun violence. You can read those essays at thetrace.org and at suntimes.com. Thank you so much Thank for sharing you. with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This episode was produced by Meha Ahmed and Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Dan Tucker and Brenda Ruiz. We host interviews with newsmakers in Chicago every weekday on Reset from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. live on 91.5 FM or from the WBEZ app or your favorite smart speakers. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.